Well, I wonder how you felt when you heard about Israel Folau's Instagram post last April. His picture said, warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you, repent, only Jesus saves. And then in the comments under that post, he wrote, those that are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. And then he quoted Galatians 5, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17. It was pretty on, pretty full on. And in the end, it generated intense worldwide debate, which led to his very public sacking from professional rugby union. One of my RSS buddies asked me what I thought about Palau's comment when we were travelling in the fire truck, and I said something like, well, it's not what I would have written on social media. How would you have responded if you were in the back seat of the fire truck, if someone said that to you? Would you have been, like me, perhaps a little bit embarrassed by judgment? Embarrassed by God's judgment. Now, I'd like to think that my motives are normally good. Not always, but when it comes to evangelism, I really want to see everyone in the village and valley of Jamboree and beyond know about Jesus and come to serve him and know him and love him and be loved by him. I want people to know the mercy and the grace of Jesus and that God is loving and accepting and forgiving. But at the same time, I, I sometimes I, I'm careful to try not to turn people off. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to go all kind of fire and brimstone on them. So I think we are, in a sense, careful not to turn people off because we want people to be turned on to Jesus. We want people to know the love of Jesus, to be saved by Jesus, and we don't want to create any, stir, any kind of hurdles or stumbling blocks. Now, in a sense, I'm in good company. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's kind of a nice positive message, isn't it? And Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I think they're really positive messages to share with people as they are trying to understand what it means to be friends with Jesus. But Jesus also said, for judgment I have come into the world. And he said publicly at another time, he says, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And the Apostle Paul, you remember as we looked at it last year in the book of Acts, he said to one non-Christian, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you. It's a lot like what Israel Folau said, isn't it really? So why is it that we often attempted to say Jesus is love instead of Jesus is judge? Why do I invite people to heaven rather than warn people from hell? Or why are we embarrassed by judgment? Well, maybe we're a bit scared of persecution, and that's understandable. But maybe it's because we just don't get the connection between justice and mercy. 
we don't realize that when we see God's judgment, we also see his grace. And then this points us to God's glory. See, God's judgment shows his grace and his glory. And that is why it is a glorious judgment. A judgment that shows God's glory and his grace. This is why we're going to spend four weeks looking at the topic of God's glorious judgment. We're going to focus on four moments of world history. The first week today, we're going to look at God's glorious judgment in Eden. We're going to go back to creation and Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the snake and the fruit and all that stuff. Next week, we're going to look at God's glorious judgment in Egypt. So we'll see how Pharaoh challenged God and abused God's people and then how God sent Moses to warn Pharaoh and then sent the ten plagues and then split the Red Sea and brought them to safety and all of that. So we've got Eden, Egypt. Uh, Next we've got Easter. So the third week we'll be seeing clearly God's glorious judgment at Easter, the, the, the cross, the empty tomb, and how all the promises of mercy come true at the cross. We've got Eden, Egypt, Easter, and the end times. We're going to consider God's glorious judgment at the end time when Jesus returns and he judges the living and the dead and what it is like for us as we are there gathered in heaven as the smoke of hell continues to bloom. Well, the Bible's one big story and the theme of God's glorious judgment is seen throughout the whole book and we're going to examine that one big message in these four talks, but we're going to start right at the beginning, right at the very, very, very beginning, which is a very good place to start, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God made everything. Can you see the word judgment up there? No. So what on earth has this got to do with God's judgment? Or everything? It's important because because God made everything, it means he owns it. It's his universe. God owns everything because he made everything. And this is something that people often don't get. People in our world try to come up with the ridiculous notion that everything just always existed. Now, there are all sorts of ways that people will try and say how things happen and stuff, but the idea that it's all... The human body, planet Earth, how can that just evolve from mud? God made it all. And because God made it all, because he made everything, he makes the rules. On Monday morning, Oscar is going to go and try for his peas. (laughs) No pressure, mate. (laughs) Now, Oscar's very fortunate because our our old Toyota Corolla, we'll flick him the keys once he gets his peas. You know, it's a long way in Jamboree to travel. Public transport doesn't work so well, and so... You know, off he goes. Now, Oscar knows that it's not his car, it's my car. And if he doesn't treat it well, what's going to happen to the keys, mate? Throw them back to me. Or I'm going to, you know, take them out of your gripped fingers. (laughs) He could say, 
no, Dad, it's my car. And I can say, no, I don't think it is. And I can go and find the registration papers and say, have a look. Now, I get to make up the rules because it's my car. And you won't be surprised if I say, Oscar, I'm taking the keys off you because I saw you drive at 51 in a 50 zone. Naughty, never happened again. And away we go. I can make the rules up because my car. If I actually made the car from, from steel and I cut it out and I welded it together, that would be even more the fact that it's my car. You see, it all comes back in terms of the rules and the judgment and everything to who owns the car, who owns the earth, who owns the universe. And this is why the creation is so important in understanding God's judgment. And the opening chapter of Genesis tells us a bit more about creation. Verse 26, God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. God made us and he said, Guess what, humans? You're the boss. I'm not the boss of the universe. That's my job. I'm God. But you're actually the boss of the earth. You, can, you look after the animals. You, you, I'm giving you this special job. And what's more, this creation is very, very good. Verse 31, Then God looked over all he'd made and he saw that it was very good. This is important as well. In all of this, God made humans to rule and enjoy the world. And what we see in the opening chapters of the Bible is that God didn't just sort of stick them anywhere. He stuck them in a particular spot that was very, very special. We read in chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Life was good. He was in the most beautiful place in the world. And everything was good about it. But God made one rule that must be kept. I've got all these beautiful trees for you to eat fruit from. Knock yourself out. But not that one. Just that one. Stay away. Don't eat its fruit. One rule. And you might say, why does God make that rule up? It's like because he made the place. But why does he have the... Because he made the place. He owns the place. He makes the rules. And it turns out he's been very gracious in giving this beautiful place to live and the beautiful fruit and stuff. But he says, you need to trust me. And that means you need to avoid eating the fruit from that one tree. Can't be that hard. Why would he possibly want to break that rule? Why? Well, in the third chapter of Genesis, things go pear-shaped. You might say it's apple-shaped. The Bible doesn't tell us what kind of fruit it was, so I'm happy with a pear. But it went bad. Verse 1 of chapter 3, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Everything was going so well. Beautiful place, beautiful fruit, beautiful everything. And this snake turns up. And the snake goes to the woman and says, first four words, 
Did God really say? Did he really say? The snake undermined God's rule. He put doubt in the mind of the woman. Even though life was as good as it gets, the snake wanted the humans to stop trusting God. But the, the woman understood what was supposed to happen. She replied, the serpent, she replied to the serpent and showed that she knew that she needed to keep God as king because he made her. He loves her. He's created this beautiful world to live in. Why on earth would, he, would she for a second want to doubt God's goodness? Well, the snake basically came back at her straight away and said, You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. I don't know if the woman ever thought about the possibility that God was concealing something from her, that he was holding back something good from her. But this snake comes along and says, I can make you happier. You are not completely fulfilled. And he sowed that little seed that undermined her contentment. And so she was faced with a choice. The woman either had to trust God or trust the snake. Because they're saying different things. God's like, life's good, just trust me. Stay away from the fruit of that tree and all will be good. And the snake's like, no, 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 no. You want better and I can give you better. Grab the fruit then you will have that extra next level life. Trust me. What's the woman going to be doing? Would she be like God? Could she have superhuman powers just by eating this piece of fruit? Well, before we see what happens, and most of us know what happens, but imagine what would be going through God's mind at that very point. He's looking down there. He's made this beautiful place. He's made... Adam and Eve, and they are having the best life you could imagine. And he's seeing the snake say this. And right at that moment, imagine what's going through his mind. That's a lie. The snake is lying. And I know that he's lying. And imagine how he would be feeling as the snake is saying that he in some way doesn't really love them enough, that he's holding something back, that he's, he's kind of hasn't given them the full first-class experience. See, right there at that moment, the Lord would be right to be experiencing anger and right to being wanting to judge them. Because what was happening here is that the snake doubted God's love and his word. He said, God doesn't really love you, and what God is saying to you is not really true. And the woman recognised the, the snake's evil attack on God. Did she, did she say, you must, you must be wrong because you're the snake. God is good. God is loving. God is wise. And verse 6, the woman was convinced by the snake. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. The woman was convinced. This is very sad. 
she saw the beauty of rebelling against God. She, she smelt the, the aroma of sin and it was really good. She wanted what God had been hiding from her. And so she ate some forbidden fruit. And her husband, the leader of their relationship, who was right there with her, uh, listened to her, listened to the snake, and it all went very, very bad. Did God have a right to be angry? Too right. It is right for God to be angry. It's right for God to judge them for their actions. In fact, it wouldn't be right if God didn't judge them. See, if I walked into one of my kids' rooms and they completely trashed the place completely and I just did nothing, you know, or a school teacher walks into a classroom and someone's turned it completely upside down and smashed the place up and they say, they shrug their shoulders and do nothing, you'd say, that's a bad parent, that's a bad teacher. See, the kids knew the rules and they broke them. And if the teacher or the parent or whoever did not judge, then their integrity would be in tatters, their leadership would be in ruins, their name would be in mud, and everything would go into chaos. And how much more with God? How much more with the Garden of Eden? How much more with the rebellion of the snake and the woman and the man? See, I think that we are embarrassed by God's judgment when we forget that he is creator. Uh, that's the thing that's missing in it all. And we forget that he didn't just create the world in black and white. He created it in glorious colour, uh, with the ability to, to taste the difference between different coloured fruits. And, and capsicum. I didn't realise that different capsicums tasted different. But they do. I mean, what kind of God does that for us? You know, the colour, the, the, it's good. And we, we are embarrassed by the fact that God is judging because we forget he's creating. All his creation was a glorious gift to humans and yet humans blatantly rejected his rule and therefore we should cheer at God's judgment. We should rejoice when he restores and protects his glorious rule. It should be like one of those dramas or those movies, right, where they've got a court, that, a court scene, and you know that the, the murderer has got away with it for so long, and then finally there's a cold case, and they, they discover some more evidence, and they bring the person up into the dock, and there's a retrial, and finally the person is said to be guilty. And what happens in the courtroom? Everyone cheers. Finally, judgment has worked. Justice has come. And we go, yes, high fives and all that sort of stuff. That is how we should feel when we understand God's judgment. That's why we should not be embarrassed by it. And not just because it means that justice is preserved, not just because God's glory is, is maintained, which is true, but also because judgment shows us God's kindness. Now, you may not realise that quite yet, but over and over throughout the Bible, tonight and the next three times, 
we're going to see so much grace, so much mercy, so much kindness, all in the same sentence as God's judgment. And right here in the first sin, we are now going to see his grace. And it comes, ironically, in the sentence that he hands out. What do you think God should have done at that point to the man and the woman and the snake? What should he have done? He should have put them to death. Right at that point there, the whole human race should have been destroyed. Uh, The snake should have been smacked on the head with a blunt shovel, you know, country style, whack! And the man and the woman, they should have had a massive stroke or heart attack or whatever and just died and fallen over, bang. Uh, That's how it should have ended. It would have been a really short Bible, you know. But that's what it should have been, really. That's justice. But it's not what God did. Instead, he handed out punishments that were far more gracious than they ever deserved. To the man, he gives this punishment. Verse 17, he says, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It's a great translation. But basically, uh, now... The relationship between humans and the environment is now damaged. There's conflict between humans and the environment. Where do we see that? We see that with the drought. We see that with all the things that cause such anguish to primary producers and to people who just are trying to grow a bit of parsley in the back garden. You know, it's hard. There's now we've got natural disasters. We've got all the things that are happening. It's because of this moment here. To the woman, he gives this punishment. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Childbirth will be painful. The relationship in marriage there with her husband will be stressed because there's a confusion of roles and an abuse of authority. Basically, what we read here is that there's pain in childbirth and conflict in marriage. All that came about as an act of judgment from God. But the serpent also gets punished. He's now going to crawl in his belly. I'm not quite sure how he got around before then, but whatever it is, he's now rolling around in the, in the dark, in the dust. But also, verse 15, he says to the snake, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, This serpent, who was so sure that he could convince the, 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 the humans to follow him and that it would all be good, well, it doesn't end up so well for him. There's going to be a constant hostility with the woman. And the glorious judgment of God is seen here as the as curses. The curses break down the relationships between humans and each other, between humans and the environment and the earth, and humans and God. Can you see there are three relationships that are broken down? Us and God, us and each other, us and the environment, the earth. And what's more, verse 23, the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had made. The punishment's been served. And I wonder how that makes you feel. 
Do you think that it's fair for God to have done that? Do you think Adam and Eve and the snake and all those who come after them were given a fair punishment? Well, they've been given a much smaller punishment than they really deserved. They've been shown grace. And it's not only because they haven't been wiped off the face of the earth, which they deserve, but it's, we see the grace in the details of the punishment they receive. Because firstly, by being expelled from the Garden of Eden, they are prevented from living forever in this fallen state. They're thrown out of Eden for their good. Interesting, isn't it? There's a verse there which says that we don't want them, God says to himself, we don't want the humans to hang around in here because then they'll live forever. And they don't want to live forever like this. And what's more, by being thrown out of the garden, I think it sees that they are given a hunger for another garden kind of thing like it. I don't have time to talk about it now, but, but the way that the temple is described in the chapters, in the books that follow, kind of is a bit of a recreation of the Garden of Eden. Anyway, you can work that out in your own homework. But further on, we, we get to the very, very end of the Bible, and we get to the second last chapter of the very last book of Revelation. And what do we get? We get a city, the city, the New Jerusalem. The whole Bible is this trans this journey from the garden. To the city. And because they're chucked out of the garden, it gives them a longing for the city. The holy city. The new Jerusalem. Where God will live amongst his people, wipe away every tear, no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. That is what they're looking for. But there's another thing about the punishments that you might have easily missed. And that is that there's something about the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Did, did you notice that before? It was a bit weird. I'll put it up again. Genesis 3.15, he said to the snake, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, literally your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What's he talking about there? It's a promise of the cross. It's the promise that a descendant of Adam and Eve will one day come and smash up the devil. You may not have noticed that before, but there are various echoes of it throughout the Bible. You see it in the book of Galatians, a few other places as well. But right here in the third chapter of the Bible, in this part of a curse, we see that the, the first blueprints of the cross. We see the first echoes of Calvary right there in that promise. There's a promise about the victory of Jesus. And where this judgment should have brought hopelessness, we now see hope. And that is why it is such a glorious judgment. It is full of mercy and it is full of hope. And because of those promises, it's possible then... A few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, to have what is really the, the greatest promise of the Old Testament. Now, it's these words, famous words, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Three big curses are now met with three promises. Three curses are met with three promises. I've been reading a really good book this last couple of weeks called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. I couldn't find many books on the topic on which I'm preaching. This particular one is like 600 pages long. I've only just started it, really. It looks really good. But as I'm reading it, this guy, James Hamilton, makes a comment about the fact that we see these promises here in Genesis one, in Genesis 12, 1-3. to It's not amazingly new stuff that he's, uh, he's uncovering, but I, I think he puts it well. He says, let me quote, he says, The promise of seed to Abraham guarantees that the cursed difficulty in childbirth and the conflict between the genders will be overcome. The conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will also be resolved by the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations will be blessed, and the curse on the land is answered by the promise of land where the collective seed of Abraham will become a great nation. In other words, in this promise to Abraham, we see God's mercy and we see hope. And it's ultimately in Jesus Christ that all those promises to Abraham come true. God's glorious judgment brings mercy and justice and holds high the great name of God. And so why are we embarrassed about judgment? Why? Shouldn't we be more bold about God's judgment and therefore more bold about God's mercy and his glory? I'm I'm quite challenged by this, as I say it to you, as you can probably tell. Well, this is actually what Jonathan Edwards thought back in 1741 when in Enfield, Connecticut, he preached the now famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's one of the most famous sermons ever preached. And in fact, it was published at the time and people read it. It was a long sermon with a warning one after the other about hell and how to avoid it. And it is said that even before he finished his sermon, people were moaning and crying out, saying, What shall I do to be saved? Could you imagine that? You must, you must flee hell. You must flee hell. God's judgment is real. And he hasn't even got to the punchline yet. And people are already saying, Help me. Help me. What must I do to be saved? Because as Edward spoke of God's glorious judgment, people came to know the mercy and grace of Jesus. Uh, To quote Edwards, those people awoke and flew from the wrath to come. Different moments in history require different strategies in evangelism. I get that. Uh, It's good to focus on the love of Jesus and the hope of heaven and in a sense say, well, we'll talk about heaven and hell, hell and sin and all of that when the time's right. But maybe if we spoke more about God's glorious judgment, then 
maybe we might see a greater harvest of saved sinners. Maybe we might experience here in the Illawarra what Edward saw at the Great Awakening. Maybe we might see a powerful revival if we share in the passion for God's glorious judgment and the mind-blowing mercy of Christ. Let me pray. Loving Father, we love your justice. We love your judgment. We are sorry for having rebelled against you. And we thank you that by trusting in Jesus, he takes upon himself the judgment we deserve. Justice and mercy embrace Father, please help us to fall in love afresh with your judgment, with your mercy, with your glory. And may everyone in Jamboree and the Illawarra and in New South Wales and in Australia and in the world know of your judgment and your mercy and your glory seen in the face of Christ. Amen.